Have you enjoyed watching the Olympics this year? Um, our family has watched quite a bit of it, and you know, one of the most compelling things about the Olympics are the human interest stories behind the athletes getting to know some of their stories, and I really admire the stories of perseverance and endurance, um, and so that's kind of caught my attention this year. Um, there's a 41-year-old female gymnast from Uzbekistan, an amazing lady. Uh, this is her, I think, her seventh Olympics, and she won gold at the Olympics before some of her competitors were even born, <laughs> but she keeps at it. And then how about this uh, 35-year-old American swimmer named Anthony Irvin, who won the 50-meter against teenagers in 20-somethings. You know, I like, it's heartwarming to me to see the older people win, <laughs> the 30 and the 40-year-olds. You know, at one point in his career, he's about to, to throw in the towel and give it all up, but he went back into training, and here he is. He won the gold, the oldest swimmer, I think the oldest swimmer ever to win a gold medal at the Olympics. And then maybe the greatest, now I didn't see this live, but I, I, I read about it, one of the greatest stories of perseverance and endurance sort of in real time right before our eyes was the, the, the two ladies who collided in the 1500 meter. It was an American and I think the other lady was from New Zealand, is that right? And they collided and they fell down and, and one lady helped get the other one up and the American was hurt worse and she hobbled across the finish line. But it was because this other runner was encouraging her to endure. And what a picture of endurance and encouragement. We need one another to endure. Well, you know, I bring that up because we've been in the book of Hebrews as our epistle reading for many weeks now, and that is really the theme of the book of Hebrews. Endure. Keep running the race. In fact, Hebrews 12 starts with that image of a race, and the author of Hebrews says, run the race set before you with endurance, keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. Run the race. And as I've mentioned before, the, uh, the people to whom the author of Hebrews is writing were Jewish Christians. They suffered persecution. Some of them, it says, were imprisoned. Some of them had lost property. Some of them faced ridicule in public. They were tempted to give up because of this pressure. And uh, there was the, the grandeur and the majesty of the temple worship. I believe Hebrews was written still while the temple was, was, was there in Jerusalem. And uh, there was a pool, an attraction to, the, to go back to the faith of their fathers, what they were raised in and uh, to experience once again the majesty and grandeur of the temple worship compared to this house fellowship that they were in and suffering ridicule and persecution because of it. And so the, the author of Hebrews, who I, I think had some sort of pastoral relationship with the people to whom he's writing, he cares for their souls and he's exhorting them throughout this book, making argument after argument, why you need to keep your eyes on Jesus and not turn away from him and abandon the faith and walk away from the church. That's, just this, that's, that's what he's doing throughout this book, making argument after argument, giving motivation and reasons to keep running the race. And in our passage of Scripture, 
from, from Hebrews chapter 12. That's what he's doing. And so I want to look at this. The reasons that he gives for enduring, for persevering, for staying on the track. And really, I think he gives here, I've structured it this way, a, a reminder, a warning, and then a word of hope. A reminder, a warning, and then a word of hope. And the reminder is about the kind of relationship that Christ has won for us. The kind of relationship that we have with God under the new covenant. And he talks about the kind of experience of God that people in the Old Testament had at Mount Sinai when the law of God was given. This is a foundational covenant for the people of Israel. This is a cornerstone covenant. This is where God made a covenant relationship with the entire nation of Israel at Mount Sinai as he gives the law to Moses. Moses mediates this covenant. And there's a flashback here. The author is talking about what happened on the mountain. And it's a scene of terror. And it's a scene that is meant to remind the people of God or teach the people of God then of the great distance that exists between them and God. So he says, you've not come, talking to these Christians, you've not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Moses warned the people of God, I'm going up to this mountain to meet with the living God. Don't touch the mountain. Don't even let a beast, don't even let your animals touch the mountain. So on Mount Sinai, God is revealing His majesty. His power, His glory, His otherness, His transcendence, His holiness. The image I thought of was His blazing holiness, like the sun. I mean, if you stare at the sun long enough, what happens? You can go blind. If some way you were able to get close to the sun, eventually you would burn up. And the blazing holiness of God is dangerous to sinful humanity. And so what's being emphasized on Mount Sinai is the gulf, this great divide between perfectly holy, righteous, just God and sinful humanity. But the author of Hebrews says, now it's changed. Now we're under a new covenant. God has sent another mediator, another Moses, A better Moses. And now we come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. And now we can experience a relationship with God that is one of joy and intimacy and closeness. But you've come to Mount Zion, he says, verse 22, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And then he talks about these angels. We are, when we worship the living God, we are As we say at our Eucharist, we are joining with innumerable angels in this joyous festival of praise. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, their names are written in the book in heaven, and our names too. And to God, who, yes, is the judge of all, but to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, perfect through 
the work of Jesus, who he says in verse 24, is the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood, that is the blood of Jesus, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel cried out for retribution. When Cain killed Abel, his, his blood cried out for justice and retribution and vengeance. But the blood of Jesus purchases forgiveness. It speaks of forgiveness and cleansing and pardon and the mercy of a just and holy God. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying to these people is you have been brought into this kind of relationship with God in the new covenant. Why would you want to walk away? Why would you want to give up on this? Instead, as he says in Hebrews chapter 10, draw near. The old covenant, especially what happened on Mount Sinai, emphasizes the distance between a holy God and his people. But Christ came to bring people near to the presence of God, giving us access to the presence of God. And so we are to draw near. It's a relationship of closeness and intimacy and love. I think there is a desire in the human heart to know the Heavenly Father like that. To know the love of God like that. To be close to God. I remember one time somebody telling me that their father was a World War II veteran and that generation, you know, the stereotype is the strong, silent, tough man who saw a lot of terrible things and kept a lot to himself but provided for his family, was strong, but didn't express emotions too often. And this, this man told me, and he was in his 40s at the time, that he had never heard his dad express verbally how he loved his son. And it wasn't until the, until, until the end of his days, until his father was passing away, his father was dying, that he got to hear those words, that, son, I love you. And then the son got to express that love back to the, to the father. And that was a powerful moment for the son and the father. And there was something there that happened that was kind of a healing, whole, whole, a, a, a work of restoration. Because that was something that his heart needed to know, the love of his earthly father. Well, well, it's the same in the, the spiritual realm with our Heavenly Father. There's a deep longing in the human heart to know this Father's love. And the author of Hebrews is saying, through the work of Jesus, that's the kind of relationship we have with the Heavenly Father, who is holy and righteous and just and is a consuming fire. But through His Son, He's brought us near. Why would you want to walk away from that? So that's the reminder. Remember? This wonderful relationship that Christ has won for you. And then there's this warning. And this comes in verse 25. See that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. God is speaking. God is speaking through the author's writing. God is speaking through His Word. God has spoken through His Son, Jesus Christ. And He's saying, do not refuse when God speaks. Don't turn away. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned from heaven, again, he's talking about the people of Israel, the way they refused and often turned away from God and fell into idolatry, they did not escape that. God's judgment came to them. Much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. And so the, the author of Hebrews is, 
It's saying it is of ultimate importance how we respond to God when we hear His Word. And throughout the book of Hebrews, there are several warnings about falling away from God. I think of all the books in the New Testament, the theme and the warning of falling away, of committing apostasy, comes out most clearly in the book of Hebrews. Over and over again, he warns these people that he cares so deeply about, about the dangers of apostasy. Apostasy, by the way, is, the way I understand it, is a deliberate, decisive rejection of Jesus. Having known who Jesus is, having experienced something of the blessing of the gospel, understanding that Jesus Christ died for my sins, experiencing something of even the presence of God, and yet saying at one point, I'm just going to walk away from all that. And, and the author of Hebrews warns of the serious nature of that. In fact, he uses some very sobering, hard language. Again, trying to warn people not to do that. He says, to do that is like crucifying again the Son of God. It is like trampling underfoot the Son of God and profaning the blood of the covenant. That's Hebrews 10, 20, 29. To decisively, deliberately, renounce or walk away from Christ. And again, think about the context. First century, there are people being persecuted, being pressured to publicly deny Christ or to go back to the temple, go back to the worship of the fathers. And what he's saying is don't do that because it has serious spiritual consequences. You can shipwreck your soul. So denying Christ and walking away from Him, it's, it's not like it's just a lifestyle cho choice or just an option. I can opt in or out and it has no spiritual consequences. He gives a stern warning. There are disastrous consequences for people who commit that kind of deliberate apostasy. That's the warning. Now, he's a good preacher. He's a good pastor. And he's not going to end on that. I've learned through the years, you don't end on a real sober note, generally speaking. You want to motivate people with a positive vision. And so he speaks this word of hope. He gives this word of hope towards the end as he's wrapping up chapter 12 and indeed um, the, the book as a whole. There's one more chapter to go, chapter 13. But he, um, he calls us to endure because of the hope that we have in the future. We have this inheritance of an unshakable, everlasting kingdom. So verse 26 and 27, he says, At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Yet once more I will shake the earth. Not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. Listen, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. There is coming a day, a, a, the final day, the day that's going to wrap everything up, the day of judgment, where he says God is going to shake the world. And those things that are not eternal are going to go away. But the eternal kingdom is going to remain. And think about how attached we can become to the things that eventually are going to be shaken and fall away. The Apostle John says this in First, uh, First John, I think it's chapter 2. The world and its desires 
are passing away. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the pride of possessions. Think about that list. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life and possessions. Isn't that what so much of our world is built on? Isn't that what so much of our world is motivated by? Aren't we tempted sometimes to attach to those kind of things? He says it's all going to go away. But the one who does the will of God endures forever. And there is an eternal kingdom coming. And that's what we keep our eyes on as we run this race. That will help us endure to the end. I came across a story this, this week. I had never heard of this German Christian named Helmut von Moltke. He was kind of like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Same uh, connections in kind of the noble class of, of German society, but a, a Christian who stood against Hitler. And he was involved in the plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. And he, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, was arrested and in prison and eventually executed. And in his final hours, he was able to write letters to his wife Freya in jail. He knew he was going to be executed. The sentence had already been given, and he had a couple of hours to write to his wife. What would you write in those final hours? He talked about how he was condemned to death. And he said that, I wanted to say this to the judge. He said, he, he quoted, who else? He quoted Luther. And he said, I wanted to say this in my defense. This is the only thing I wanted to mention. Although they take our life, our goods, our honor, children and wife, yet is their profit small. These things shall vanish all. But the city of God remaineth. And that's how he went to the gallows, with that hope. The city of God remaineth. And that's the hope that we have. And that's the hope that the author of Hebrews is holding out to the people he's writing to. What is it that tempts you to throw in the towel sometimes? What is it that tempts you to stop on the track? What is it that tempts you to give up? I think we're all tempted in various ways. Um, and I'm not talking about renouncing Christ. I'm talking about I can go through the motions, but really my hope is not in Christ. I'm not really clinging to him. I'm not really focused. My eyes are not on him as I go through this life. Some people stop running the race or they're tempted to do so when they go through intense suffering. And, and they wonder how God is at work in the midst of this suffering. Some people are tempted to give up because of the pressure of society. I think especially young people today. Peer pressure and the pressure of society and the hostility and ridicule that they can face. Some people are tempted to give up because you're just disappointed with yourself and your own failures. Or maybe you look around the church and you say, wow, a bunch of imperfect people. They make a lot of mistakes. They disappoint. Maybe it's just not worth it. We're tempted to throw in the towel and give up. But the author of Hebrews says, remember. Remember this precious relationship that Christ has won for you. 
heed the warning and remember the hope that you have. The eternal home, the everlasting kingdom. Do not give up. Keep running the race. Let's pray.